Hey everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interview David Bringelson, founder and CEO of Carbon Cloud. Carbon Cloud helps restaurants and food brands calculate and communicate the carbon footprints for all the food that they serve. And the reason why this is important is because if you look at other things on nutrition labels, like protein, calories, carbs, these are all metrics that are given to customers so that they can make smarter decisions around how they purchase. But also for brands, it's important to have the information so that A, you have a better understanding around which parts of your supply chain are the most carbon intensive, and B, once you actually have this information, you can start optimizing around specific parts of the chain so that your footprint becomes better tomorrow than it is today. And in the episode, David and I will discuss how almost 10 years of research in his master's and PhD led to starting Carbon Cloud. What carbon labeling is, and the 101 on what goes into calculating the carbon footprint for different food products, landing their first big customer in Oatly, and the massive long-term potential for a company like Carbon Cloud. And before we jump into the episode, I just want to remind everyone that this show is made possible by our sponsor, EIS. EIS, which is short for Environmental Air Specialties, creates one of the industry's most effective air purifiers. So if you want to learn more about what they're about, just click into our episode description and see how you can save $500 on their flagship air purifier. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation with David Bringelson, founder and CEO of Carbon Cloud. David, welcome to the show. Thank you. David, let's start with the basics. What is Carbon Cloud? So Carbon Cloud is a web platform for transparent, rapid climate footprint calculations for food to make climate labeling of food items feasible on a large scale. All right, that's super interesting. We just had Just Salad on the show. And if you saw the news recently, they're one of the first U.S. restaurant chains to climate label their entire menu. If we look behind the scenes, can you give the listeners a brief 101 around A, what is climate labeling broadly? And then B, how does it work? How do those figures end up manifesting on menus? Yeah, so if you take climate labels, it's a quantitative number of how large the climate footprint is of a product. So basically saying by purchasing that product, if it be uh, like a menu item at Just Salad or one of Oatly's products, say that we climate label, it says how many kilograms of carbon dioxide equivalents that are emitted in the production of that product or menu item. And yeah, the the basic thing is if we're going to solve climate change, we need to get those numbers down. And by measuring it thoroughly and accurately, uh, we are able to start managing and start make, basing our decisions on, on that information. 
Mm-hmm. Before we get into some of the mechanics behind the scenes, why you think having data information is important, I want to rewind because yep. if you look at your previous experience, it's quite interesting. You started off as a research volunteer at FAO and then spent the next many years actually studying at Charles University, first getting your master's in industrial ecology and then spending almost six, six plus years on your doctorate. Maybe explain to the listeners, what were you exploring? What was the core focus of your research? And maybe what questions were you trying to answer during that time? Yeah. So I was like, I had been intrigued of climate change, like global sustainability problems in general and climate change in particular quite a lot. And I was, when I was a student, I found out that a lot of the teachers and professors giving the courses worked with really interesting problems and were close to policymakers in the domain on climate change. So I was persuaded, persuaded as it were, to start a PhD there and go into depth. And I, I did. And, and I worked on sort of understanding the reasons behind climate change and investigating the solution space and see what we can do to improve. And first it was broader. In the beginning, in the last few years, I was focusing quite a lot on the food sector. And I was, during that time, I was sort of, yeah, I was looking at basically what can we do in food to lower the climate footprint. On a global scale, food is responsible for about a quarter of the climate problem. So it's by no means the biggest part of fossil fuels are. So it makes sense to start with fossil fuels. But if we are going to solve the problem, we can't ignore as much as a quarter of the problem. And when I was a researcher, I was quite active in sort of the public discourse on, on this and, and found that the reason why things weren't moving forward were not due to a lack of solid good science, but a significant lack of access to the information of the people who needed the information. So you could say that the, the public picture of what was understood and, and, and what solutions there were was very far from the research community's picture of it. And Got it. Yeah. So I want to dive a bit deeper into that consensus because part of me questions whether or not more information moves the needle. The other part of me can reference history like calories, for example, right? When calories started becoming this highly prioritized feature on the nutrition label, you could see the before and after and how it influenced consumer decision-making. People started optimizing for lower calories if they were trying to lose weight or more calories if they were trying to put on mass. Mm. So I would love to hear your critical take on why you think carbon labeling is so important, maybe as a byproduct of your research, but what did you find or what served this inkling of yours that giving people the footprint of the food we eat would be impactful or effective in moving the needle on how we interact with the world and the food we consume? 
Yeah, so start with, if you don't have information on what to do, you have no idea which direction to start moving whatsoever. And when it comes to to food, there are two things where, that I found when I worked in research on it. It was clearly that about half the change was in sort of the production line. So the producers from inputs to farming through farming and and um, uh, refinement of products that you, you could do a lot of change. And then you had on the consumption side, you had roughly equal amount of change you can make. And then you can have that change happen in, in various different ways. But so sort of you, you need to start measuring to be able to start managing. And to like for food, if you say that if you look at the consumption side of things, the change from eating your average sort of European or North American meal to switching to a climate-friendly one, that's roughly equivalent of, say, changing your gas or diesel-powered truck with a Tesla or a bicycle. But you don't have to spend all that money, or as in the case of a bicycle, not everyone wants to, to ride a pushback to work. But you can get an equal sort of equal size impact in climate performance by just switching what you eat. But then you need to know what to do. And here you can say information can come in different levels. The first one is to say, yes, we need to talk more about climate change and food makes up a quarter of, of the problem. And you can hear that many times and start thinking, okay, so now I know that, right? But then the second one is you need really solid information when you make the decisions and they need to be really concrete. And their climate labeling can play a part because the difference between products can be really significant. We're talking like for... for Products that fill the same function, the, the, the difference in emissions could be a factor of 10, 20, or 30. So there's a big difference between what you choose. And here's like, climate science is hard. The, climate, the physics of the atmospheric climate science, that, that's hard. And the, the science in the biological systems that cause the emissions, that's really hard. But the decisions you need to make to reduce the emissions, be it in the production line or as a consumer, they are not hard. I mean, there can be hard business decisions if you should spend money or this or that, but they're not difficult to understand. You don't need a PhD in physics to understand how switching fuel would change your emissions or taking this package instead of that, how that would change emissions if you have the data. You, you don't need to be a scientist to, to be able to sort of make the change, but then you need access to really reliable information. That resonates a ton with me. I want to zoom in one layer further before we zoom out and look forward. Can you help the layperson understand how the metrics are calculated? Because I know there's part of the problem is really coming to some consensus around how the information is delivered. But then looking behind the scenes, how you actually get to the figure presented. So can you just explain in the how to for dummies version, how are these metrics calculated? How much do the companies that you work with have to provide information? What does the auditing process work like? Just maybe just for a really simple 101 on how these metrics are actually coming together. Yeah, for sure. So we can start sort of in general how this is done and then go into the specifics of how we do it because we do it a bit differently from sort of the how it's been done before. 
if like I hold a coffee, a cup of coffee in my hand, and then you can ask, what's the climate footprint of that coffee? Well, then you need to start asking questions like how much water is there in there? How much power went into heating that water? How many coffee be- how much coffee beans is in there? And then where do the coffee beans come from? In what type of package? What were the logistic chains of getting them there? Where were the coffee beans refined? Uh, from how were they shipped? Where were they grown? What, what was the yield where they were grown? How much fertilizer was used? What was the climate like? What type of soils were there? What was the, how did you produce the inputs for the agriculture, etc.? So there's that, you have to follow the product uh, and the ingredients all the way back in the value chain. And there is, you can safely say, a lot of information that needs to be kept track of and a lot of different questions to be asked. And um, here comes sort of the, there is, you said there are two tricky sides to this. One is that particularly when we move into agriculture, the calculations themselves are tricky. And because the sort of the soil organic processes are complicated, biological processes that cause emissions. And then uh, you have often like very complex value chains, you have byproducts, you have mixing of ingredients and you have various different suppliers and you can have several different actors in the supply chain. And you need then to make an assessment, you need to collect information from all these different parts and you need to know how much waste there are in different steps, you need to know like all of this information. And then you need to sort of build a model to keep track of that. And typically this is done by specialist consultants who are highly educated within the area and spend their days doing this building, typically Excel monsters as it were, like that competently can assess these things. The like two or a few problems with this consultancy-based method are that different consultants may disagree on exactly what to include and what to exclude. Because you can sort of reasonably argue for different decisions on what how to draw the system boundaries, how what to include, how to exclude, how to treat various things along the way. And that means that two really well done reports may in fact not be entirely comparable with each other. That is a problem. Another problem is that relying on consultants to do this work means that it's really costly for the food producers. And also it takes a lot of time. And lastly, it means that the core competence of of understanding the value chain and what improvements can be made is held outside of the company, typically the company being the food producer. And here, this is where we come in and do things sort of differently in the sense that we are not consultant, but consultants, but we have developed a web platform where the food producers perform the modeling themselves. They don't need to see any of the mathematics. They don't need to worry about any of the science. The platform is built in such a way that you get that right, even if you don't understand the science at all. You just need to know what your production processes look like. And then on top of that, it's built as a network so that you can, instead of sending a ton of emails to your suppliers and try to find out how they produce their goods, you can just tell them to get on the platform and they can model their part and then share the results without having to disclose any trade secrets. 
and we ensure that the assessments are sort of done in the same way so they're entirely comparable. And this also means that we allow for our customers to be transparent with their results without having to disclose trade secrets. And then, of course, we validate. They make the modeling, we validate each and every assessment, and we do that in, over time, more and more sort of automatically validated. That's super interesting. Thanks for clarifying. One quick footnote or question that I have just to build and piggyback off that is, what are a few example questions or prompt that are part of this modeling process? If I'm any part of this supply chain or I'm the vendor, right? I'm mm. only, what are a few questions if I'm a prospective brand that might work with Carbon Cloud, what, what are a few of the questions that I might anticipate seeing as part of this onboarding flow? When you get on the platform, what do you need to answer, basically? Is, is that the question? Exactly. Are you yeah. asking how big is the facility? What type of, exactly, like things of that nature. Yeah. Yeah, so we do it on a, on a per product perspective. So the size of the facility doesn't matter per se, but we need to know sort of what's the energy requirements in the facility. So typically, the first question is how many facilities are there? Because frequently there are several steps in different factories. Uh, and then what processes do the products go through? So is there mixing? Is there heating? Is there cooling is there like and how energy intensive are these different steps and uh, quite frequently it like data on a per process level is unavailable but then typically you'd have on a per facility level and then of course the question is how much natural gas how much power how much whatever do you require per unit of time a month or a year and then how much how, how many tons of product you produce in that same time period to sort of get these per unit uh, numbers and then, of course, when you do the like uh, refinement, like how, how much, how, what are the losses in several different steps? And then how do you ship it from here to there? What type of packaging do you have? Yeah, stuff like that. But, but the data required to do that are data that are typically core of core relevance for the production managers, et cetera, who need to, so these are the cost parameters to a very large extent. So, so. Got they it. may need to collect some data, but it's data that's readily available to them. They don't need to worry about what the climate footprint is for any of their parts going into it. They just need to know the, the quantities of goods and energy, etc. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. David, you must have quite the interesting story about onboarding customer number one, because for that first brand or company, it's a, a process, right? You need to be educated on what's expected of us. And then you have to go and engage different members of the team to surface the information. And obviously, you've simplified the process at the end. But I, I would love to hear the story about engaging with customer number one. And then beyond that, Oatly is a, a brand that I know started in Europe is, is in every cafe in the United States now. They're in world domination mode, but that is a massive customer. So I would love to hear the story on how you engaged with your very first customer and then how you broke the ice with a company like Oatly. Yeah. So these happen to more or less coincide. 
so yeah, <laughs> this is a good story. So basically, the trajectory that we took, sort of, uh, I had to go back a little bit in time for our company. So when we started this company, it started initially, it was when I was, I was like doing a postdoc. I was thinking about these questions and I, I posted an idea for a master thesis about climate labeling the canteen at the university where I worked. And I got this really good master, master, master thesis student and she did an awesome awesome job at it. So we, this was in 2016, in the spring, we started climate labeling every food, a very manual process in the canteen. And uh, we found then going into it, the, uh, the CEO there, he was a bit worried about sort of putting red climate labels on food. He thought the customers were going to get scared away, but he agreed to, to do the trial. And it turns out, turned out that it was really good for their uh, customer relations and they got more loyal customers because it, it was much appreciated. So then I ran into some other people and we decided to start a company doing this towards the, the food service industry, so restaurants. And we did that for about two years, relying on underlying data on ingredients from this consultancy-based process that I described before. And, and then when we had done that for a while, people started asking about their specific suppliers. And we realized that there was sort of, a, there was a lack of data for specific products and even for some product categories. And we were looking into how to improve that. And we found out that this, there was this really strong frustration within the food industry for how this expensive consultancy process worked. And then we thought, hey, we know how to do that because in research, when we've done research before, we've done these, built these models where we do massive amounts of climate footprint calculations for, for agricultural stuff at one go and make sure to be consistent. And it's like, we can do that so much cheaper. And also we've done, also already built this user-friendly tool that was much appreciated in the restaurants for planning the menus and just making life easier. So we thought, okay, let's, try to move into this other space because that market is much bigger and there seems to be this really articulated frustration, right? And then having this idea, having this sort of vague plan for how to go about solving the problem, we needed to find out if there was a market. So then I actually sent an email to Oatly, whom I had emailed with two years before asking for data. And I just sort of, we have this idea, would you like to try it out? And they were like, no, but we have this ongoing relationship with someone else. And my re response was, hear me out. If, I'll, if we'll deliver half of what I promise you, you're going to drop the, your current sort of supplier like in a heartbeat. We got the meeting and it turned out that we were very well aligned when it came to sort of vision. Their marketing team is bold. You could say they thought the idea sort of, they had also, as it were, actually been talking about this idea internally when we showed up. So the timing was just, sometimes the stars just align. <laughs> and so they were looking for a solution for this and, and they didn't have any. And we were looking for a customer who was willing to try this. And our first question was basically, are we trusted as a supplier of this type of information? Are people interested in doing this sort of in a standardized way where they do the work and sort of buy the data on a subscription instead of doing it as a project? And well, the rest is history, you could say. We started doing it. First, it was like we got a grant for a sort of research type project to start off, but we quickly outgrew that. And it turned out that when they started going external with the information about half a year after this initial meeting, 
that resonated with the market. And, and then we, so in the beginning, we did a lot of, we had this automatic model, but we had to do loads of manual work. And then we've been really sort of motivated to get all the manual work sort of replaced with algorithms and user interfaces, et cetera. Wow. David, talk about a huge, probably financial, but symbolic win to the world because everyone knows Oatly. Yeah. So any other potential customer you engage with sees the stamp of approval from a company like Oatly and instantly it verifies the kind of integrity and quality of Carbon Cloud's product. It's a huge win for the company. Yeah, it is. It really has helped us. There's no question. And they sure did their due diligence before we got off the ground. Like we mm -hmm. had several meetings where we got all these questions. Uh, they needed to know that they could trust that we knew what we were talking about. And of course, then we had to talk, like, talk about sort of what we've done in research before and publications we've had. And um, yeah, and we do know the space <laughs> really well. So mm -hmm. they understood that. And then when we have gone into other customers, of course, they quite frequently sort of, some of them still ask sort of due diligence questions like to, to details, how well we understand it, but a really large extent take it as, yeah, Oatly has done that work. We trust them, which is good. Of course, it makes the sales cycle <laughs> more rapid. <laughs> mm -hmm. If we look at some of the companies you work with today, because clearly y'all are doing a lot of things right. I saw you just shared a post about working with Volvo, their headquarters yep. and the different restaurants they have across their company footprint. I would love to hear, to the extent that you're aware of, a success story about how after a company starts working with Carbon Cloud and they get a sense of what parts of their supply chain are the most carbon expensive or intensive, if that has in any way informed switches to their supply chain, changing packaging, any larger scale efforts to change the way things are done after they've been supplied the information to do so? Yeah. So uh, tricky question that some of that, well, I can't share everything, but, but you could say that we have clearly seen that companies that make noise sort of it becomes the climate performance becomes KPIs for them. So they start taking the question really seriously. That's also why we really encourage everyone to start becoming transparent. Like we, we, we run into a lot of uh, sustainability managers who are talking about, no, but we, we work internally with these issues and we take them so seriously, et cetera. But we have seen that if you can get the marketing team on board, then suddenly it becomes top priority for the ma top management. And, and then you work more harder and harder with these things. And th that's also, so with the customers we have, being, like including the big ones, they use our platform and you, it's sort of, it's built in a very visual way. It's a graphic user interface and you, you like at a glance see where the hotspots are. And then of course it became, become obvious what you can do and what you should do to sort of reduce the footprints where they are. and incorporate that into sort of decisions on where to place factories and where to source from, et cetera. And uh, to take a very sort of more concrete example, I can say that 
the first, the very first restaurant that we work with, the canteen at the university here, they noticed after a little while that they had this, like you have a meat dish, a fish dish, and a vegetarian dish every day. And they noticed that the vegetarian dish very frequently had much higher climate footprint than the meat dish, because say the meat dish might have been chicken and uh, rice, whatever, and then you'd have some like heavy cheese, uh, dairy product in the vegetarian. And then the vegetarian dish would have a much higher climate footprint and quite significant sometimes. And it bothered the production manager that like, <laughs> they wanted to be like, uh, <laughs> now where they've sort of started working with climate change, they wanted to do that, do it well. And that turned out that they sort of re-educated their personnel to make sure that they became really good at uh, cooking vegan food because then they'd sort of remove all the dairy products from the vegetarian food and, and get the footprints down. So they have significantly reduced their footprint over time. You'd have some some effect from the customers just choosing differently from the menu, uh, sort of the, the footprints being there. And then they have sort of made decisions on sort of how to change the the, the contents on their menus like quite drastically to, to get the footprints down. So wow. it works, it works. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, and, and also David. if I, may, I just may add something that I think is really cool, which we've seen, it's been when worked with with a restaurant, it's been like so so many times we had this like initial meeting. You have someone like in manager or some someone who introduces the idea, and you see the chef, and they're like, "Oh, another IT system." They're typically not too happy about IT, right? And then we show the system, and they realize, okay, that looks really easy to use. And then if we meet them like one or two months later, you see they're in this like competitive mode and they're like we are going to get those numbers down and we're going to get these people to try different types of food and, and like they're really engaged and, and like they, these are proud people and it's so cool to see how they are they find this new dimension on which to excel which is good for everyone involved so wow. that's really cool that is super cool and clearly you've done something right a month ago you announced the company has raised a million dollars mm. to fund a number of efforts, hire more people. I can see on the site that you have a flat 200 euro a month fee for use of the service. Can you just explain broadly for prospective customers, are yeah. there different tiers based on company size? What, what is the business model for Carbon Cloud? Yeah, so the idea is that since climate footprint information is a perishable good for several reasons, one, like, the, that is the data gets outdated quite rapidly because the world, the surrounding world changes and because you typically, based on this information and other information, change suppliers, move production sites over time quite rapidly. Uh, the standard way of charging for this consultancy project, of course, is a project basis. You pay quite a lot for it and you get a really massive report and uh, you do it for one or two products every once in a while. But we realized that if this is going to fly, we need to do it for full portfolio. And if it's going to be worth anything, we need to keep the data up to date, always. And hence, we figured that a subscription service is much more sort of fitting to the problem. Because then we can incentivize the users to actually change how they produce things and then make sure that they keep it updated. And then uh, basically the, the price needs to be low enough so that it's worth, it's easy to try 
and it makes sense for a producer to do it for all their products. And the customer journey is typically you start with somewhere between two and five, six products. You get started and launch then like some climate labeling on those and then come back and think about sort of how to move on to the rest of your portfolio. And from our perspective, of course, if we get a customer signing for one product and running for five months and dropping out, it's not going to be a very good deal. But so far, we churn has not been a problem. And like the problem is increasing in relevance and the users learn a lot from this. And we have seen really positive market effects from being transparent in this manner. Also, we've had some one customer who have not gone public yet, so I can't mention who they are, unfortunately. But they did this market experiment where they labeled products and they did sort of A-B testing. And they found that uh, even though a significant share of the people seeing the product was surprised at the magnitude, so the footprint was higher than people expected. I don't know why they expected a particular number for the product, but they did. And, and they thought it was high, but they still increased in their willingness to purchase the product. So people, like the transparency in and of itself made people want to be loyal to that brand. And we see this over and over again that sort of it's, it makes a lot of sense. And you have enough people out there who take climate change really seriously, want to be part of the solution and say, hey, here's a producer who is working on the problem. So let's go to them. And hence, we basically see that the idea is to get, it's an easy decision to make to get started. You try it out, and then when you we sort of discussing a full portfolio, say if you're a large company, you have not one product, but maybe 30, 40, 100 products on 20 different markets, then of course it becomes more expensive. And then we have sort of package deals for larger portfolios. But when, when it's time for the customer to make that decision, they already know what they are purchasing because then normally they've already tried it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. You, get, you give brands a very low commitment way to test the product. And if yeah. it resonates, then it's an investment that you are fully aware of, you know, what you're getting, the value add. And to your point, when customers see the product that is carbon labeled versus not, there is a clear effect on conversion, on willingness to spend. Exactly. So, uh, and, and, that only, yeah. Yeah, sorry. And, and also, the, the idea here is that the, the value needs to be low enough. Like, like if 200 euros, you don't, need to, you don't need to sell particularly many additional products in a month to cover that. And, and we have made a conscious decision to keep the price at a level where we can get everyone on board. Of course, if we just were aiming for the first movers, we could have it like a steeper price. But we think that it, it, the idea is to make this a new sort of like you have the nutritional information on all the products, to have this like on all the products. And then we need a, a pricing picture where that can happen. And, mm-hmm. and we, our mm-hmm. platform could support that. We could get every food producer on the platform. And then suddenly uh, you don't need to spend time thinking about how to do the assessment. You only need to st- spend time thinking about how to improve your performance. Mm-hmm. Strategically, I can see a lot of nice network effects playing to your advantage long term as well because as Oatly, a big brand or Volvo, big brand, starts to give you more information and you're able to to fill in data through that entire supply chain, 
A, it becomes that much easier, increasingly easier for the next brand to come on because they trust Carbon Cloud. But also, when you look at other providers, right, I'm looking at other technology solutions that want to be able to reference this data set. Whichever company is going to have the most kind of robust ecosystem of audited, valid data or brands that they work with, there's this like self-fulfilling flywheel that makes yeah. Carbon Cloud more valuable and more the go-to choice for other industries that want to loop in, in this type of information. Uh, to that point, are you working with any companies, maybe banks, financial institutions that want to reference the ecosystem of Carbon Cloud data? So not directly right now, as in we have had discussions with several of that type of companies for future collaboration. We don't put effort into that right now because we need to focus very, it's really easy to get distracted in this phase because we have, we're still a small team. We need to like do the most value, valuable things at, at each and every moment, but we are doing things like we have just launched a feature of automatically generated web reports so that for each and every product there is this that gets published, you get a web report that is standardized where a user can go find information on how the assessment was done and what it means, right? And these are then easily searchable, searchable through Google and we're working on making that connection as easy as possible to find. And our idea is to make the data, like there is no, the data is not hidden. Our idea is to get all the data out there as much as possible to help, help with the transparency so that these banks and other places that you, uh, or actors you're talking about, they can just access APIs that we are building to make it sort of easier and easier to, to just connect and, and use that. Because we think that the world, for, for solving this, this problem to having a standardized platform where the information is in one sort of specified way is helpful for everyone. And you talk about network effects and also like sharing data between suppliers, like competitors typically share suppliers and then you get the suppliers on board and it gets easier and easier to get better and better quality data. So having one platform is really useful. And I think that our platform would do a really good job at that. And as in we have we are really thorough to make sure that we have definitely state-of-the-art in accuracy in all the calculations to make sure that the incentives are right so that the information you get there will provide the right incentive structure to make the change you need. Mm -hmm. uh, and then also, of course, just sort of being in the game of building a company would be really cool to make a big one, of course. <laughs> so so if, if like we haven't seen a competitor solving this problem in this way just yet, there might be one we haven't heard of just yet. And if someone else do it, someone else does it and do it like better than we do, that would be good for the world. But so far, it looks like we are in a fairly good position of actually claiming this space, which would be, wow. would be pretty cool. That actually leads me to my next question. And it's the last one before we segue to the idea graveyard. And it's, it's the moonshot for Carbon Cloud. And I know on your LinkedIn, on the site, you're very explicit about the positioning, right? Food is your sweet spot. And certainly, this industry is massive, right? There is tens of thousands of restaurants and food manufacturers around the world. So I don't think there's a – it would take a lifetime to work with all of them. So mm -hmm. uh, I'm wondering, in your mind – 
What is the moonshot for Carbon Cloud? Is it food from now until the end? Do you want to explore other industries? What does it look like over the next five to 10 years for Carbon Cloud? Well, yeah, being a company that is fundamentally different now from six months ago and six months before that, talking about 10 years is hard. <laughs> of course, sort of world domination. No, but, no, but seriously, we, like, we have seen this. Okay, let me take a step back. Sort of climate assessments in general are, are complicated, but for food, they're really hard. Meaning that, and we are really good at that. So you could say that our competitive edge is stronger on food than other things because it's more difficult. So by making it easy, we, we solve a harder problem for people. And the food is food sector is lacking behind other sectors when it comes to action on climate change. That's why we started working there. Uh, but then we have, like, should we go into other sectors? I've already gotten questions about very different types of products. And our software, as we see it, could solve sort of the problem of making assessment for fundamentally really different problems. And I think that as a byproduct of solving the food sector's problem really well, we might just be building the best sort of general LCA tool for anything. Wow. Which, and then it becomes a business decision whether and if so when to move into other verticals from food. And then if you take the first one, just sort of consumables in general, like you could take your shampoo or toothpaste or I don't know, whatever sort of you buy as consumables, that is also quite straightforward. When it comes to other things, take a car, say, then you have so many different moving parts and, and making sort of this, keeping track on what's what, it's hard. And that's a problem then that we could help solve. But then you have other parts of sort of what is the functional unit? What do you compare it to? When it comes to food, you have a kilogram of food or, or a pound of food and same with toothpaste. Like you, you have sort of a feeling for how long it lasts. So you can make the comparison. When it comes to car, it's, yeah, you could have a ton of car or two tons of car. How far will you get in it? And then it's like... It's the standardization process that makes sense for the end consumer is not as straightforward for many other types of products. And that means that the packaging of the value proposition would be a little bit different. And in 10 years time, it wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if we crack that as well and move into these other sectors. When it comes to five years, I think we could have exponential growth for five years and still not having saturated the food sector because it is very big. So, so it's, wow. the question is always, of course, should you go for yet another one in the sector you're in or should you go broader? And of course that depends on many different things, but I don't know, the sky's the limit and the problem won't go away of its, on its own, the climate problem that is. And if, yeah, it, it will hopefully continue to sort of increase in sort of awareness and, and business importance. And then, yeah. We'll see. That's amazing. David, like I mentioned when we first connected, it, the last question of every interview is around this notion of the idea graveyard. Yeah. And so my question for you is, what are one of these ideas that you would love to work on if you had the time to do so, but for the time being are just rotting away in your idea graveyard? Yeah, I spent a week thinking about that question and, and I've found it so incredibly hard 
Like it surprises me how hard it is. And I think I've, I've been sort of passionately thinking about this problem now for a few years. So everything else sort of fades in, in importance. And even early, I can mention things that we had sort of from the first two years when we worked towards the restaurant industry, we had these like really awesome features with making sort of automagical to plan things, et cetera, that, but now I sort of don't feel so important anymore. Uh, so, so it's like, yeah, I don't know. This is probably the most boring thing, but it's like I can at the moment not really imagining doing anything else. And five years ago, I had absolutely never spent a thought on moving into sort of entrepreneurship <laughs> and running a company. And now it's, if this doesn't work, I have absolutely no idea what to do. Like I could probably <laughs> get another job, but I don't feel very interested in that. So, so, so it's, it's and this might help me focus. I don't know. I don't know, but, but, but I, it, it's hard. <laughs> David, no, I must say, typically I look forward to the surprises in this section, but I think your answer is precisely what I'd hope to hear from someone like yourself that is fanatical about a problem of this nature. This problem is lucky to have someone like yourself working on it. So if anything, I just want to tip my hat and celebrate your obsession and focus on the problem set. It's a testament to how much you have solved. There's no surprise there. And it actually makes me <laughs> partly envious of the investors that were able to make their way into this round because I think that there is so much potential and upside in what you're working on and you will be the, the pioneer and entrepreneur that sails the ship there. I, I want to just leave you with an opportunity to A, announce anything that you might think would be important with our listeners, any hiring needs, any key announcements or events upcoming, anything that you want to leave with our listeners, the floor is yours. Oh, wow. Thank you. I, I should have gotten a sort of a, a pre, <laughs> it would have been good to, plan, good to plan an answer to that one. I think for hiring, we have just closed a few hirings. We are still going to hire yet another salesperson. But sort of in general, at the rate we're going to be doing a lot of hiring in the coming years. So if you feel like you have something to add in the domain, please just sort of go to our webpage and we have this career site and just sort of send your credentials and tell us why you'd be awesome for us. Because if there's one thing I've learned on this journey is that you can't do a thing like this yourself. You need a lot of people to take ownership on to the project in so many different ways. And uh, so anyone is sort of, if you want to be a customer or whatever, work with us in any way, let us know. We'd be very happy to sort of expand our network of, I don't know, the family working on this problem. And then otherwise, uh, I don't know, we, we're gonna, we have something pretty cool that we're gonna launch later this autumn, but I, yeah, I guess you'll have to wait until we do that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. David, congrats so much on your early success, on the team members that get to come along on this journey with you. 
thank you for giving me a bit of your afternoon today. And we'll have to do a round two after this surprise announcement actually yeah. hits hits the internet in a few weeks. So again, David, no. thank you so much. Thank you so much for having you. Having me, sorry. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, no, I think it's been a really nice chat. And it's thank you for sort of letting, helping us sort of reaching out and telling the world about how we can help solving the problem. There are many sort of many different types of things need to happen at once for this to work. And help from people such as you is really valuable. Absolutely, David. Thank you again. Thank you. Hey there, you made it to the outro. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you're new here, welcome. If you're a longtime listener, thank you so much. We're actively casting for new guests on our show. So if you have a rock star founder or company in mind that's working on something cool, message me on Instagram at Peter A. Levin or email us, hello at ingothands.us. Thank you so much again and look forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday.